Let's say our verse for this coming week. It is Acts 20, 21. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 21. This is an important verse when you're soul winning and sharing the gospel. And it is also an important verse just understanding the gospel message. There have been several over the last decades that try to say repentance doesn't matter. And these are guys that are supposed to know their Bible. But here it's very clear that repentance is important when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. All right, if our ushers would come, we will receive our tithes and offering. While we are receiving the offering here in our service, let me share a great need, your prayers. Please pray with us that God would use and bless the Foothills Baptist Gospel Hour. This program is a ministry of Foothills Baptist Church of Loveland. If the Lord would lay on your heart to donate to the Foothills Baptist Gospel Hour, we will provide our contact information at the end of this program. We will now return to the service. Into the heart of Jesus
again this morning. We have the privilege of evangelist Paul Schwenke coming and, and preaching. Uh, here is a man that spends a diligent amount of study time and uh, knowing God's Word. And not only that, but wanting to live God's Word and declare it. And, and what a privilege we have. Brother Schwenke, come and preach what God's laid on your heart. Thank you so much, Pastor. God bless you this morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Ruth and chapter number two. Ruth chapter number two. And, and I'd like to begin reading this morning from Ruth chapter two and verse number two. And what a great time to be with God's people at Foothills Baptist Church. I, I just enjoyed this week immensely. Uh, thank you. And if I could echo the words of the preacher, thank you so much to Brother Miss Story and, uh, and just a great, great job of hospitality yesterday. And, and, uh, it was, it was wonderful, ladies. I don't think one guy lost it out there. I, I mean, some of the mighty shooters were exceptional, some not so much. <clears throat> but um, but I, I mean, the time of fellowship was just fabulous. The time of food was even fabulous. And everything was just great yesterday. And I appreciate the effort. And I appreciate uh, Foothills Baptist Church joining together and doing a mighty work for the Lord. And, and, uh, and pray. Some men heard the gospel yesterday that the word of God would find root in hearts and lives. And, and uh, that uh, some would water, some plant, some water. And God gives the increase and in how we trust and pray for that. You have your Bible this morning to the book of Ruth in chapter number two. Uh, uh, we started Thursday night in the first verse of Ruth chapter one, and it certainly is quite the amazing story, is it not, in the pages of the Bible. It all begins with a father making a series of very poor choices, and it would appear that mom was right behind him. As he said, oh, not with his tongue, but he said it with his life, my wallet is more important than my Bible. Yes, I know I'm not to leave Bethlehem Judah, the house of bread and praise. Yes, I know I'm not to leave the land that God has placed me in, but after all, there's a famine in the land. And when there's a famine in the land, somehow people feel they have a license to slide away from the word of God. And this is not going to end well for Elimelech. He takes his wife, he takes his two boys, Malan and Kilian, and they make their way to the land of Moab, a place where God pretty much said, thou shalt not. I mean, you know, I love when humans say, oh, the Bible's so complicated. Yeah, really? What part of thou shalt not is complicated? I mean, what part of all have sinned? What, I mean, what about that don't we seem to be able to grasp? And when God said thou shalt not, God certainly had his reasons, but, but when there's a famine in the land and I can hear my wallet calling, well, Elimelech says, uh, no Bible today. Today we follow what I want. And sure enough, tragedy strikes because as we preached the other night for Elimelech, it starts out with, well, we're just going to sojourn there. Then he continued there. Then they dwelled there. And, and soon that man dies and the two boys get married, but they die. And now there's a woman and there are two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi, Ruth and Orpah, they stand at the crossroads of decision. It's time for Naomi to go home. I guess we can go home when the famine is over. And yet when those two Moabitess young ladies, Ruth and Orpah, stand at the crossroads, will the Bible paint such a mighty picture. Here is Orpah vacillating back and forth. I know I should 
should. I know I want to. I know I ought to. I know I need to. Uh, M&Ms or Skittles, she just can't make up her mind. And finally, when Werpa cannot decide, her backslidden mother-in-law makes the choice for her. You will turn around and turn again and go back to your family, go back to your friends, go back to the Moabite capital of Kerr. You will go back to your gods. And of course, when she tries to tell Ruth to do the same thing, there is that classic moment in the Bible where Ruth said, excuse me, ma'am, she's pretty much reading her the riot act. I have decided to follow Jesus. Where thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. And most importantly, thy God, my God. And where thou diest, there will I die. And there will I be buried. What a classic moment in the Old Testament. What a classic moment in world history. Ruth makes her decision. I will follow Jesus. Well, that doesn't mean things are going to be easy for Ruth. And and now she's going to make her way down a most desolate canyon that I've ever seen. I mean, from 3,500 feet above sea level, down below sea level, to the lowest spot on the earth. As she steps out from the end of that canyon, she's walking on the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah. And why, to make matters worse, she doesn't know what tomorrow is going to bring. She is broken. She is desolate. She is pretty much hopeless. By her own mother mother-in-law won't even speak to her. She is lonely, and yet what she knows is that the God of the Bible has saved me. And Ruth chapter 12, her testimony or chapter 2, her testimony is that I have come to dwell under the shadow of his wings. And now Ruth says, I know him. He is my Savior. And with no human on her side, with nothing but heartache and fear and, and nothing to seemingly live for, she says, my life for the will of God. She begins or make her way to Bethlehem, Juden. I'm afraid things don't work out so well. The Bible tells us back in chapter number 1, verse number 20, that when Naomi comes to the city, the welcoming committee is there for her. And it seems like she waits for just the right spot and just the right time to enter into her, oh, how sorry my life is, to play the victim card. And we cannot help but read chapter 1, verse number 20 and say, Naomi, you're the one who made the choice to violate the Bible. You are the one who chose to live in the Moabite kingdom for 10 years. You are the one who chose to give your sons to marry uh, Moabitess ladies. And she said unto them, call me not Naomi. The word Naomi means pleasant, kind, lovely. She said, call me Mara. That word means bitter. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. We come to the end of Ruth chapter 1 and there is a bitter, angry Naomi. But in Ruth chapter 2, the Bible tells us that this stranger, this Ruth the Moabitess, has found herself in the city of Bethlehem. I mean, there's no future for her. Or maybe there is. If you're able physically, could I invite you to stand together with me as we go to Ruth chapter 2 and verse number 2. And the Bible says, and Ruth the Moabitess. Fourteen times we are reminded that she is from Moab. She is Ruth the Moabitess. She doesn't look like us. She doesn't talk like us. She doesn't live like... She's from that Moab country. 
And Ruth, the Moabitess, said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on the part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Father, we again pray for your help and your blessing as we come to the mighty words of our God. For someone without Christ, may the preaching of the word of God grab their heart. May this even be the day they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they are saved. I pray for your children that the word of God would stir our hearts and our minds. And Lord, may you do in our hearts the work you did in Ruth's. We pray in the great name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. It's hard to put in words in the English language the resolve of this young lady, Ruth. And I say young in Bible terms, especially Old Testament days. She's got to be pushing 30 in that, I mean, (laughs) in the Bible, can I tell you, ladies, that's right over the hill. But you know, not so much in America, but it certainly was in Bible times when Ruth takes a step and says, I'm going to go where God wants me to go. Why the resolve and the conviction there is fabulous. But you know, something perhaps we wouldn't consider so much as we read these words and in our way of thinking. But Ruth is saying, I'm going to go to a place where there's no future for me. I mean, her mother-in-law has pretty much spelled it out. If you go back to your family and back to your religion and back to your gods and, and back to your city, well, perhaps perchance there's a tomorrow for you. But there are no husbands waiting for you in Bethlehem, Judah. There is no future future for you, Ruth. And, and yet when Ruth stands there in chapter 1, verse number 16, with conviction for the ages and says, I will go, I will go. My friend, there's a God in heaven that takes notice of the passion of Ruth, a God in heaven that takes notice of the heart of Ruth. It may be Ruth is thinking there's no man for me. There's no family for me. There's no friend for me. I mean, even the one lady that ought to encourage me is angry with me. And yet as Ruth goes without a friend in the world, or so it seems, little perhaps does she know that there is somebody on her side. You know, there's something awfully special about the Ruth of chapter 1, verse 16. There's just something special when when some human stands up and says, My life for the will of God. And it's not exactly what she is saying. She is giving her heart to do the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And when any child of God says, I will live my life for Christ, well, you'll never find a better verse in the Bible to show us how that comes out. It's one thing to come to an altar in a service. It's one thing to sing a song. It's one thing to quote a verse. But when somebody is saying, I am giving my life for the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God, this is it. Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. What that means is that I go where God wants me to go. What that means is that I live where God wants me to live. What that means is that I stay where God wants me to stay. What that means now is that God's people are my people. And what that means is that I am making a choice that will last for the rest of my life until I die. If someone wants to live for the will of God, and you're not exactly certain how, Ruth chapter 1 verse number 16 and 17 gives the outline, I think, better than any other place in the Bible. That's what it means to live for the will of God. And we watch this young Moabitess woman say, no more Chemosh, no more pagan religion, no more the old way of life. I have decided to follow Jesus. This world is not my home. I'm just a pastor. 
sing through. Why, in any which way you say it or any which way you sing it, the story of Ruth is the story of a lady living for the will of God. There's something awfully special about that. A while ago, I was preaching in the state of Mississippi, and, and on a Sunday morning, the pastor asked a, a, a man, 80 years old, that was visiting that day to give his testimony. The gentleman stood up and, and said that he came from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, a medium-sized city, I suppose. And, and, and he said, when I was 60 years old, I retired from a comfortable job. My wife had gone to heaven, and, and he said, I, I had worked a long time, had a good, comfortable retirement, had a nice home in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And, and I know the church of whence he was attended, a, a good, strong church. And he said, you know, I had a comfortable retirement laid out in front of me. And, and then this man said, when I was 60 plus, it all happened at a missions conference. At a missions conference where a missionary began to preach. And are you willing to give your life and to put it on the altar? Are you willing to say like Ruth did, I will go where God wants me to go. I will live where God wants me to live. And I will be what God wants me to be. You know, sometimes we think Ruth 116 is reserved for Thursday night at youth camp. However, I can't find that in the Bible. I cannot find an age qualifier where God says, I'm only interested in teenagers giving me their life for my will. No, this man was 60 years old and he came, got on his knees that night and said, Lord, whatever you want me to do with my life, I will do it. He stood there that Sunday morning. Remember, he's 80 now. He said, little did I know what God wanted me to do. That elderly man said, when I was 60, I gave my life for the will of God, but I never imagined what God would call this old Southern boy to do. He said, God called me to Russia and not just to Russia. God called me to Siberia. And for the next few minutes, he began to tell stories of the last 20 years of his life as he was helping a missionary plant a church in Siberia. I mean, he talked about taking chainsaws and cutting holes in the ice so they could baptize people. And, and, and you know, when I listened to this elderly man, a Southern boy, nonetheless, talk about how he winded up, wound up in a place like Siberia. I could only shake my head and say, my, it is something awfully special when a man says, I will live for the will of God. Not long after that, I was preaching out in a, a, a village church in Papua New Guinea. And just a special time when a wonderful missionary's done a wonderful work for God. Uh, he said, you know, when I, I got here to Papua New Guinea, I wasn't quite sure how to do this. So he said, we just led people to Christ, began to train them. And, and then one of these young men was ready to preach. So we started a church. He said, uh, nobody told me how to start or name a church. So he said, we just called it Baptist Church Number 1. He said, then we were on Number 2 and Number 3. And, and I preached at Number 6. The next Sunday was the commissioning service of that church. And my, we just had a special night. And, and when the service was done, it was just exactly what you'd imagine a, a place like this in Papua New Guinea. I mean, up on the stilts was the thatched roof and the open side and the men on one side, the ladies on the other side. It, exactly what you'd imagine the mission field to be. When the service was done, we were standing outside in the grassy area, and, and uh, I was introduced to a pastor by the name of Pastor Levi, and my missionary friend told me that he was the pastor of a church called Rapture Baptist Church. I like that name. I said, well, Brother Levi, I said, where's your church located? And uh, we're out here in Papua New Guinea now, and he pointers mountains everywhere, and he points to a mountain. He says, you see that mountain over there? I said, yes, sir. I said, is your church on that mountain? He said, no, no. But he said, if you were to climb to the top of that mountain, you would be able to look and see another mountain. I said, oh, is your church in that second mountain? He said, no, no. But if you went to that second mountain, you would see another mountain. 
Now, I got tired of asking him, so I didn't say anything. But he said, on that third mountain, that's where our little church is. I said, Brother Levi, how long did it take you to get here? I uh, understand the subway doesn't work in Papua New Guinea, at least not to that place. He said, it took me four hours to walk here. He began to talk about Rapture Baptist Church and said, that little church on the third mountain in a village called Betoy had been used of God to start two more Bible preaching churches. I got to tell you, there's just something awfully special about people that do the will of God. And it may be somebody in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. Why, it may be a man that's 60 years old at a missions conference in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. But there is just something wonderful about people who say, my life for the will of God. I preached a number of times. One of my favorite spots, a, a, a city, a rather large city. I believe it's the third largest city in the country of Peru. High in the Andes Mountains called Juan Cayo, 12,000 feet above sea level. I, I have a tremendous time preaching there. And the pastor of that church is a, a good friend, a wonderful preacher. In the His name is Brother Soto, Christian Soto. One day we were sitting at lunch. I said, Brother Soto, what's your testimony? How'd you get saved? And he told me that he was in a prestigious school and he was studying. I, he planned to be an engineer and had a great career in front of him. He had trusted Christ as his savior. And, and inside his heart, there was this gnawing desire to preach the word of God. But he said, when I graduated from college, sitting on the table in front of me was a contract from the Peruvian government. I would work as an engineer for the government. And all I had to do was sign the the contract. And he said, I would be paid annually 1.6 million Peruvian soles. That could be a lot or that could be a little. Well, in this case, it's pretty much quite a bit. I mean, if you can imagine growing up in poverty in Lima, and now there's a contract on the table where you'll get paid, run the numbers, $500 million U.S., uh, $500,000 U.S. Uh, Wouldn't have made a difference if you grew up like he did. I got to tell you, that was quite a deal. He said the pressure was enormous. Friends and families, you got to sign that contract. You're going to have to take that job. But, you know, Brother Soto knew that God was calling him to preach. One day he turned that contract down and said, I give my life for the will of God. Seemingly everyone he knew turned against him, but the Lord didn't. And as you and I sit here today, right now, I mean, they're building a brand new building in the middle of Juan Cayo, Peru, doing a mighty work for God. There's just something special about an old man in a missions conference. There's just something special about a jungle preacher in Papua New Guinea. There's just something special about a successful young man in the middle of Peru who says my life for the will of God and that's the story of Ruth chapter 1 Ruth you don't seem to understand all you have is a desolate canyon and this is going to be the best part of the rest of your life all you're going to do is take a long journey climb the mountains of Israel find yourself in the city of Bethlehem where there's people who couldn't care that you lived upon this earth but Ruth said I go where God wants me to go when I live where God wants me to live his people are my people and most importantly the God God of the Bible is my God, and this lasts for the rest of my life. So Ruth makes her way to the city of Bethlehem. But you know, the wonderful story of Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, of somebody, so to speak, throwing their stick into the fire and saying, my life for the will of God, all of a sudden it meets up with the cold, harsh realities of an empty stomach. And in Ruth chapter 2, verse number 2, Ruth, and here we are reminded again, the Moabitess.
said unto Naomi, her mother-in-law, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn. So one day she wakes up hungry, and she says to her mother-in-law, I want to go, and notice the field, it's singular. In, in the days of Bethlehem in this time, there was one huge field outside of the city gates. Every family had their own section, their own corner, their own plot on that massive field. But she is saying there is the field where the citizens of Bethlehem do their crane, they do their work. And she said, what I want to do is go out to that field and glean ears of corn. Gleaning ears of corn and reaping corn are not the same thing. The reapers would go and work the fields, and, and then when it was harvest time, they would bring in the crop. But they were required by law, and this is where this phrase comes from, they were required by Old Testament law to round off the corners. All of the plots were either rectangles or squares, so they would round off the corners, and, and those rounded corners were where poor people could go and they could get something to eat. If there was some crop that, you know, maybe you couldn't sell, or, or maybe for whatever reason it was something deformed, they would leave that behind as well. So from the rounded corners or anything left behind, after the reapers had reaped, the gleaners could go and they could get a bite to eat. You know, sorry, but the Bible still says if a man will not work, he shall not eat. You know, this woman, Ruth, couldn't have been more desolate. This woman, Ruth, couldn't have had a more poverty-stricken life. This woman, Ruth, has nothing in store for her. But God never expected her to stand on a street corner with a sign saying, we'll work for food. The Bible says you will not work, then you will not eat. And when America wises up, we're going to realize that God's word, it may seem harsh at times, but it's how God expects expects people to behave. No handouts now. You may be Naomi, and you may be from the Ephrathite family, and your great-great-grandfather may have been Caleb, but that means nothing. You are expected to go into the field and glean after the reapers. So the Bible tells us Ruth the Moabitess wakes up and says, I think I'll go now to the field. And, and she has the right because her husband, of course, was from Bethlehem. And she said, I want to glean ears of corn and notice in verse 2, after him in whose sight I shall find grace. I love that. Ruth thinks, you know what I really need today? Because I suspect it's not going to take long if she hasn't already understood being a Moabitess in Bethlehem is not going to be easy. And she wakes up thinking, boy, do I need somebody to show grace to me. You know, just because the law, Leviticus, said you had to round off the corners doesn't mean they did it. And it doesn't mean they enjoyed doing it. And so now here is Ruth saying, boy, do I need somebody that's going to show grace. I don't talk like everybody. I don't look like everybody. I'm different from everybody. My, Do I need somebody who's going to show favor and grace upon me? She doesn't know how much grace she needs. And the Bible tells us in verse 2, her mother-in-law Naomi, and this is heartbreaking. This is heartbreaking. She said, go, my daughter. No, it is not wait and I will go with you. She said, go, my daughter. And you know what she fails to tell Ruth in this verse? And what we begin to discover later in this chapter, that for a single woman like Ruth to go out during harvest time, it is the most dangerous thing. There's a lot of booze flowing because people stay there, work all day and party all night. There's a lot of trouble. There's a lot of immorality. There's a lot of problems that are awaiting somebody like Ruth the Moabitess. 
and without a word of warning, without a word of encouragement. Yeah, you take care of me, Naomi says. You go and glean. You go, my daughter. She doesn't care enough to warn her of the dangers. And it becomes one of the background stories in the book of Ruth. Every time you see Ruth, she is trusting her Lord. But every time you see Naomi, she is manipulating behind the scenes. You know, when somebody has a sweet, simple confidence in God like Ruth, they don't have to manipulate. They don't have to make things happen. They don't have to order and men and, and, and people. When somebody simply trusts the Lord, well, we'll see how that turns out. As for Naomi, she is constantly, constantly bitter and angry and moaning and manipulating. Well, in verse number three, Ruth, she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. So what a moment in time we have in the middle of verse number three. Could I just review again one more time? We have the story of a woman who is all alone. You could say, well, her husband is dead and her, 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 her daddy, father-in-law is dead and, and why there are no sons. And, and you could say, well, Naomi is with her, but Naomi has shown zero interest in her. I mean, from the moment they leave the capital of Karak, they begin to make their way down that desolate canyon. She won't even talk to her. You talk about alone. You talk about not a person in the world who cares. Could I remind you one more time? She is Ruth the Moabitess, which means not only is she in a place where nobody cares, they don't even like her. They are constantly reminded. It's constantly brought up. It's like the Lord just says, don't forget, the odds are completely stacked against this woman. She is a widow. Oh, she is hungry. And another thing, Ruth had been married to Malan for 10 years and they didn't have any sons. She's a childless woman. And we know from the story of Hannah and other Old Testament scriptures for a woman to be childless after 10 years of marriage. Well, well, right or wrong, and I shouldn't say right or wrong because it is wrong. But the opinion was that woman obviously is not right with God. God has not blessed her with children. Like, you don't think God knows what he's doing? And now the Bible says poor and widowed and hungry and helpless and desolate without anybody in the world that seems to care for her. After that long journey down that canyon across the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah, she literally crosses the lowest spot in the earth and she's got to be at the lowest spot in her life. And in the middle of verse number three, things could not be more desperate for this lady. And then it happens. And here's how it reads in the middle of three. And her hap. Why do I love that phrase? And her hap. You see, the world calls it lucky. The world calls it circumstances. The world calls it coincidence. But what that pagan world calls luck, you and I know, is God making it happen. And there's only one other time where this word even appears in the Bible in Ecclesiastes. But this is the special occasion where God uses that word hap. And what the world says, boy, did you ever get lucky? And the world says, boy, did things ever just work out for you? Uh, in the middle of verse number three, nothing is working out for her. In the middle of verse number three, she doesn't have a friend in the world. In the middle of verse number three, she doesn't have a nickel in her purse. You are looking at a desolate, helpless lady with nowhere to go who says what I need is just Somebody who is going to pour grace on a helpless widow today. And little does she know in the middle of verse number three, God is smiling upon her. And all of a sudden, 
the God who watched this woman in Ruth chapter 116 say, I go where God wants, I live where God wants, his people are my people, he is my God, and I stay there until I die, as she says it with an oath. Now, all of a sudden, it is time for God to intervene. It is time for God to point down at Ruth from glory and tell the angels, let's go. It is time for God to make some things happen in her life. Can I show you four things that just Matt, just, just Matt, it just happened. I mean, we're oh, I got lucky. <laughs> and heaven scoffs at that. And God says, I'm going to make some things happen for Ruth. Let me show you four things. Number one, it just happened. It just happened to be the right season. Back up to chapter 1, verse 22. And this is almost a little casual phrase just chucked in the end of chapter number 1. But the Bible says they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Do you understand how critical this is? The only time the owner of the properties would be out in the place of harvest in the field and that section of the field that belonged to their family family, the only time the boss would be there was during the harvest. Before that, there was nothing to worry about. But when harvest time came, that's when the robbers came. That's why somebody had to be there all night long. That's why somebody had to be packing and somebody had to be protecting. I I mean, if it was two weeks earlier when they came to Bethlehem, Ruth wouldn't have met Boaz. If it was two weeks later, wouldn't have happened. So when the Bible says so casually, oh, and oh, by the way, it just happened to be on our calendar, late April or early May. It just happens to be the season of barley harvest. This is not a, an accident with God. It's just the right two weeks of the year. It is just the right time. Ruth leaves Karak at just the right day. She arrives in Bethlehem at just the right moment. She wakes up hungry at just the right day. Uh, A week earlier, a week later, too bad. But no, when the God of the Bible's involved, it's amazing how it always is just the right season. It just happened to be. Notice number two, it just happened to be the right place. In verse number two, she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. I mentioned there's a community field, one massive field belonging to the whole city. But every family had their corner. They had their rectangle. They had their square. They would normally set it up with stones and rocks. And that's what set up the the pillars, the stones. That's this family. That's that family. That's the Elimelech family, whatever family it might be. And so this day, the Bible says Ruth walks out of the city, goes through those massive gates. She makes her way out to the crops, to the field. But you know, the Bible says that's not good enough, is it? It's not enough to be on the field. She has got to be on the plot of ground that belongs to Boaz. It it, it must be a story. You know, this is one of those things that's going to have to wait for heaven. I'm looking forward to hearing Ruth give her testimony. And and I wonder if Ruth doesn't walk out and, you know, I think I'll go try that corner of the field. And, and you know, the boss is there. Maybe the boss isn't there. And uh, he's not here. You got to come back later. Maybe she goes over here and, yeah, we don't want you here. Maybe she goes over there. You're a Moabitess. We don't help Moabitesses here. And and for whatever the reasons, I don't know how many plots of ground she goes to. and, And it's not that one. It's not that one. It's not that one. Maybe she's going to try that one. And something inside just says, why don't you try that one? And what do you know of all the families? And there were multiple families in this massive, huge field. She just happens. She just happens to land on the field that belonged to a guy named Boaz. Just the right season 
and just the right place. It's amazing when you say, Lord, I will go where you want. I will live where you want. Your people are my people. You are my God until I die. It's amazing how you just happen to find the right season and you just happen to find the right place. But how about this? It just happened to be the right person. In verse number three, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. And her hap was to light on the field belonging unto Boaz. One of the most eligible bachelors, I guess you might say, in town. You know, that morning when Ruth walks out of the house with Naomi in a rearview mirror, she thinks, boy, do I need a bite to eat. Boy, am I hungry. I mean, ultimately, it's all wrapped up, is it not? In the words, I need somebody that will show me grace. But in verse number three, the Bible is telling us that while Ruth thinks, I need a place to glean, I need food to eat, I need someone who will show me grace, it shows us God knows what Ruth needs better than Ruth thinks she knows what she needs. And the God of the Bible says, Ruth, you may think you need a bite to eat, and certainly you do. And uh, by the way, we're going to take care of that in a minute. And the God of the Bible would say, Ruth, you think you need to go to the field, and you think you need somebody to show you grace. But what you don't know, Ruth, is that today you really need someone who is of the family of Elimelech. You need another Bethlehem Judite that is uh, from the family of Caleb and Ephrah. You need somebody who is of the right kindred. Oh, you definitely need a man of grace, a man that will show compassion and favor to even a Moabitess woman, and not too many men would do that. But he said, more so, you need somebody with the same blood that flows through the veins of your dead husband. She prob- There's no way she could have thought. There's no way she could have imagined. There's no way she could have suspected that when she went out that day, she just happened to land on the corner of the field that just happened to belong unto a guy named Boaz. And it just so happened that he was of the kindred of Elimelech. You know, the story wouldn't work unless Boaz was of the kindred of Elimelech. The story would not work unless Boaz was a compassionate man, even toward a Moabitess woman. The story wouldn't work if he wasn't a kinsman. And you know the amazing thing we mentioned the other day? That Boaz has to be somewhere between 100 and 110 years old. I mean, all of the Hollywood caricatures and all the Hollywood movies, they're all wrong. I mean, you cannot have Rahab being your grandmother and or mother and having David being your great-grandson unless you're about a buck a buck then. I mean, it's not what you think. And, and yeah, just for the record, could I say this? Just for the record, I know what Hollywood says and I know what the flannel graph stories teach, but there's not one time where the Bible ever says Ruth was beautiful. Now, you know and I know oh, she's awfully beautiful in her heart. There's a lot of beautiful things about her. But physically, the Bible never says it. And I'll tell you why I point that out. Because there are 15 times in the Old Testament where a woman, if she is beautiful, the Bible tells us. Because if a woman's beauty, say like Rebecca or Job's daughters, if this plays into the story, it seems like God tells us so. But you know, whether Ruth was physically attractive or not, we have no way of knowing. Because in chapter 3, verse number 10, the old timer said, It's an amazing thing to me, thou followest not young men. In other words, this is not the story of two people falling in love because they are physically beautiful. However, that is defined in whatever that may be to you or that may be to me. That's not the story here. What we have is a woman who is beautiful spiritually, regardless of what the face looks like. She is beautiful spiritually because she says, my life for the will of God. 
And Boaz is handsome spiritually because his heart says, I have grace and compassion towards people. It's an amazing story as Boaz is about to become the redeemer. Just happens to be the right season. Who would have guessed? Just happens. It just happens to be the right place, the right corner. It just so happens that the right guy shows up. Who would have guessed? And how about this? One more. It just happens to be the right time. In verse number four, the Bible says, and behold, and, and I've come to love that word behold. Sometimes it reads low, sometimes it reads behold, but it's like become one of my favorite words in the Bible. Because every time you come across a low or a behold in the Bible, this is pretty much like the Lord saying, and you're not going to believe what happens now. That's kind of a Bible way of saying, fasten your seatbelt, because here we go. And what do you know? The Bible says, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. All of a sudden, here comes the boss out to check on his harvest, out to check on his labors, out to check on his workers. And with little old Ruth, that Moabitess, gleaning after the reapers, all of a sudden, just the right guy. Hollywood wouldn't appreciate him. The flannel graph story companies don't get it. But you and I know just the right guy shows up at just the right time, at just the right place, and it's just the right season, because that's what happens when God makes it happen. Years ago in the state of Kansas, there was an old preacher named George Young. Hey, just a sweet old preacher. Maybe the only one sweeter than old George Young was his wife. Hey, he just loved the Lord. He loved to preach. They loved to serve God. And, and you know, they were in some very, very small towns and even villa, uh, farming communities. And, and they didn't have any money. I mean, literally, George Young saved his nickels and his dimes and did some carpentry work on the side. And one day they saved enough. And when a neighbor gave him a small tract of land... George Young built for him and self and his wife a, a little house. You know, you and I would say, what is that, an outhouse, I think. But, but to George Young, it may as well have been the Taj Mahal because God gave them that house. Well, one day it was time to go preach a meeting, and George Young and his wife went to a distant church. And, and he said, when we were coming back, we were talking like school kids, talking about our house, and how we had some time to spend there. And, and when we came over the hill to see our house, our house wasn't there. Because while George Young was away preaching, a neighbor that hated God and he hated the Bible and he hated George Young came and torched it and burned it to the ground. George Young said he ran ahead of his wife and he, he got down on his knees and, and he said that some of the, the ashes were still warm. Every family keepsake, every photo, everything that we take for granted was burned up and gone. And yet while George Young was in that fire, his ashes, and they were falling through his finger, it was the Lord that put some words upon his heart. And George Young ultimately wrote it like this. In shady green pastures so rich and so sweet, God leads his dear children along. When the water cool flow bathes the weary one's feet, God leads his dear children along. Sometimes on that mount when the sun shines so bright, God leads his dear children along. But sometimes it's the valley, the darkest of night, but God leads his dear children along. Those sorrows befall us and Satan oppose. God leads his dear children along. Through grace we can conquer, defeat all our foes. God leads his dear children along. So away from the mire and away from the clay, God leads his dear children along. Away up in glory where eternity is day. God leads his dear children along. Some through the waters, some through the floods. Mr. Young said some through the fire. 
but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, that's when God gives the song in the night season and all the day long. Ruth the Moabitess turns her back on family, friends, religion, and gods, makes her way down a desolate canyon alone, desolate, hungry, hurting, broken. Nobody in the world seems to care less about this woman. She is abandoned and counted all but lost for Christ. And now with those words ringing across the halls of heaven, I go where God wants. I do what God wants. I live where God wants. He is my God. His people are now my people until I die. With those words bouncing off the chamber walls of heaven, the God of heaven rises and says, ladies and gentlemen, it is time to make things happen for little old Ruth. And if God can make it happen for Ruth, God can make it happen for you and me. What he is looking for is a people of God willing to get on their knees and say, my life for the will of God, my life for the good and the acceptable, perfect will of God. I go where you want, do what you want, say what you want. My life is yours. And when somebody surrenders their life to the mighty will of God, all I can say is, behold, you're not going to believe what happens next. If you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not here by accident today. No, it's not just happenstance. You are here by a divine appointment with God because God wants you in a place where you can hear that Jesus died for your sins and he was buried and he rose again. And the Bible says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You know, we could have men and ladies, young people stand up today and give story after story. And, you know, on the outside, they would just seem to be so normal, uh, so matter of fact. So what's the big deal? But they would tell you the big deal is that God put me in the right place. God brought me to the right co-worker. God put me in the right neighborhood to the right neighbor where I heard the gospel. And God led me to that place where I could make a choice for Christ. If you don't know him as your savior, the Bible says now is the day of salvation. My friend, Pastor Miller, would love to be able to have someone open the scriptures and show you from the Bible how you can be saved. Would you give us that privilege? This morning, the God of the Bible is in the business of making things things happen for people that live for his will. So your job and my job is to take Ruth 1.16 and say, that is what I'm going to do for my God. Where thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. My Father, I pray that your mighty words would work in our hearts even this morning. And, and I pray you would help us look and watch a, a young lady with seemingly nothing in her life. Broken and desolate, the world would shake their head. And yet you had her in your hand every step of the way. Lord, one day the saved child of God who lives for the world of God will tell the saints and angels, Jesus led me all the way. Now I pray for your people that at this altar there be a man, a lady. There may be a 60-year-old man. There may be a teenager, a boy or girl who needs to get on their knees and along with Ruth say, my life for the will of God. If someone's not saved, I pray that today would be that day. Wow. I sure hope you enjoyed this message by Evangelist Paul Schwanke. If you would like to hear all five messages in this series, visit our website, at foothillsbaptistchurch.com and click on the listen tab. That's foothillsbaptistchurch.com slash listen. And until we meet again, 
Be sure you are living by faith, living by faith in Jesus above. Sing 
the sound that saved a wretch like me. What type of financial advisor are you looking for? A lot of advisors work for some great companies that offer good products, but are they taking a close look at what truly matters to you? Most advisors are unfortunately one-trick ponies and come at you with the same strategy no matter what situation you are in. Most of the time, your advisor isn't even reaching out to you to review things and has no desire to actually build a relationship with you. You want to work with someone who's going to hustle their butt off and compete for you and make sure that you are maximizing your hard-earned dollars. I will work day and night for all of my clients and do everything in my power to deliver the best service possible. Reach out to me, Joey Jaquin, Joe Jaquin son, someone who is going to compete for your business and truly aligns with your conservative values. You can reach me at my personal cell, 602-909-9048. Again, 602-909-9048. Hey, 1360 fans, Tika here with Serenity Painting. Did you know that we also offer concrete, framing, drywall, and much more? For a free estimate, call us at 970-978-9565. Mention 1360 and receive 15% off any construction service and or free upgrade to lifetime warranty paint with a seven-year labor warranty included. Call us today at 970-978-9565. Hi, folks. I'm James Morgan, a realtor with Grisham & Associates, LLC. I know it must seem like there's a million realtors out there making all kinds of promises. Want to hear my big marketing promise? I promise honest and fair dealings with all those I do business with. That may sound old-fashioned, and it is not very catchy, but it is true. I am your Colorado real estate specialist. Farm, land, mountain cabins, or urban dwellings. When you work with my team, we'll get the right property for you and be upfront and honest with you every step of the way. Over the years, my clients have told me just that fact alone separates us from others in the industry. If you are considering buying or selling real estate, call me, James Morgan, at 720-203-0731 or visit my website at coloradoproperties.online. No catchy slogan, just a client-first, honest real estate experience. Hit it, girls. Keep listening to the American Freedom Network. Hi, this is Ron Tafoya, owner and operator of New Method Cleaners, Northern Colorado's oldest dry cleaners. Men's clothing to women's fashions, we clean it all. Give us a call with all your cleaning questions. If we don't clean it, we might have a solution. We have two locations to serve you in Severance and Fort Collins. Please call us at 970-775-0623. 970-775-0623. This is Rick Rodriguez. Christ said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Join me on Sundays from 9 to noon for the Olive Tree and Lampstand Ministry Radio Church Program on 1360 AM KHNC.
This is Rick Rodriguez, host of The Present Truth, Monday through Friday, 2 to 3. Topics, American World Hegemony, the New World Order, Secret Societies, One World Religion, Weather Warfare, International Wars, Transhumanism. Join me, 1360 KHNC. You're listening to the Roar of the Rockies, KHNC, 1360 AM, Johnstown, Greeley, Loveland, Fort Collins. The views and opinions expressed on 1360 KHNC are entirely those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and do not necessarily